Well, this morning we're going to return to uh, chapter 13 of the book of Acts, and we'll be looking, I'm going to try to endeavor uh, to bring us from, chap- from verses 16 through verse 42 today. So that's a pretty large chunk. And the title of this morning's message, again, will be Paul's Powerful Preaching, and this will be part two, Paul's Powerful Preaching, part two. Um, I'll leave off reading the text up front because it's uh, quite a bit of, of, uh, of reading there, and we'll just try to take it in chunks as I work through a couple of primary points, okay? So a little different approach there, just because of the larger uh, bulk of text I'm trying to take this morning. So hopefully that'll work well for you and won't throw you off. That's not my normal uh, pattern. But um, Paul's Powerful Preaching, Part 2, okay? And so I want to kind of remind you this morning as we start uh, into this, this text, and it's really focused around this, this first sermon of Paul. Now, Paul's preached before, and we know he's been preaching at, uh, at Antioch before, at Antioch in Syria. He preached there uh, for a year with Barnabas uh, and teaching and and edifying and, and, and strengthening the church there before he took part before they took part in this missionary endeavor, and certainly had preached some prior to that. So this is the first recorded sermon we have for Paul, and it's pretty unique and cool in that way. And again, it's going to be a Paul's going to take us back, and he's going to run us through the Old Testament, much like Peter did when he testified before Paul. Paul was part of the witness there as those who, were, uh, who martyred Stephen. And much like Stephen, Paul will go back and he's going to retrace uh, Israel's history and God's work throughout a linear, real, life and time history. That's the beautiful thing about, or one of the most beautiful things about the reality of the gospel. It's historic. It has, God has placed moments in space and time as He's entered in to creation, His creation, and worked salvation out through his son who entered creation born of the virgin and uh, uh, the sinless savior lived on this earth walked with us identified with us and there's a context to that a glorious context he was crucified on a real cross that happened in a real space and time at a real location it's a glorious reality. This is not a philosophy. This is not a mental uh, uh, philosophical construct. This is God working in His real creation in real space and time. This is historical. And it's the point of all of creation, the point of all of history. It is really literally His story as the old saying goes. And so, notice up front, God is sovereignly in control of human history. And all of human history finds its resolution in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to bring us right back to that reality as we enter into this text this morning. So he's going to present Jesus, and rightly so, as the climax, the apex, um, the very pinnacle of history. And he's going to do this through biblical preaching. There's an approach, there's a real story, there's a real history, and there's an approach to how Paul will tell this. And it's through biblical preaching. So hold that in mind. Now, God has ordained the preaching of the cross to be the very centerpiece, the very heartbeat of the gospel message. It's the very, the, the very core of our communication of the gospel. In that sense, as we look at this, and we look at Paul's preaching, we kind of analyze a few things, draw out a few highlights, and just uh, um, 
uh, view that and hold to that and try to look at how we apply that to our lives, know this, that in one sense, we're all preachers, right? We're all carrying the gospel. And the resurrection is really the heartbeat of the gospel. And we'll see that a little bit as we get into it. And the gospel is the very heartbeat of biblical preaching. So we're going to look at how Paul works through that. And it's good for all of us in a very fundamental way because we're all preachers of the gospel. Now, that said, the authority of biblical preaching is centered on this reality. The authority of Scripture. My goodness, the, 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 um, the things we've wandered off into to avoid this reality. Look, we're all preachers. We're all preachers of the gospel. And what's central to us preaching the gospel is the authority of Scripture. Amen? Amen. And Paul's going to go right there. And so it's a very subtle, easy reminder for us, but healthy. It's the authority of Scripture that really drives and is central to all our biblical preaching. That's where we find our authority. And by the way, that very same authority, biblical preaching based on the, uh, the authority of Scripture, is really also the authority that binds us, that unifies the church. Our unity is most fundamentally bound as it works out in our relationships. Now, it's bound in Christ. It's bound in the sovereign work of God. It's bound in His sovereign election. But as it works out in space and time, what holds us together relationally as we interact with one another and as we go forward as a living body of Christ and as we engage the community around us and other parts of the world wherever God might call us to, we're unified very fundamentally in the authority of Scripture. As we, as we go out in a missionary endeavor beyond these walls, out into the world to carry the gospel, we're bound together by the authority of Scripture. And Paul's going to stay right with it. We're just going to track him along. Boom, boom, boom. Every step of the way. And his authority, his biblical preaching, is based on the authority of Scripture. And so is it true for us. And we are unified there. We're unified there as a visible church of Jesus Christ here in this community. And so that flows from the authority of Scripture. And right here, we we know that the Word is full of biblical preaching. Acts is loaded with biblical preaching. And uh, we're going to see a little bit of that right here from Paul. For the very first time, the very first time, Paul's sermon is recorded here. So this is a pretty exciting moment that we've reached to in Acts And in Paul's sermon tells us really how the gospel progresses through history. It has a historical context to it. It tells us what the gospel is all about. And it's going to tell us where the gospel stands in terms of priority in linear history. And by the way, that's going to be right at the top. In other words, why are we here? Why does history unfold? Period. History unfolds according to God's sovereign hand, and it unfolds for a purpose, that the gospel might be the apex and meaning of all history. That's why it unfolds. That's why we're here. So that brings us to the historical context. And let me uh, point you to verses 16 through 25 there. Verses 16 through 25, the historical context. Now there in verse 16, Paul simply stood there in the synagogue, if you recall, and he got... Of the folks' attention. So he motions to him and then he says, Listen. 
And then he continues on from there. He says, Men of Israel and you who fear God. Now he's talking to Jews and Gentiles there. So we've got a, a mixed audience. And he says, Listen, the God of this people Israel chose our, uh, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. <clears throat> and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Cana, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of, of, of Kishon, uh, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming uh, a, a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, uh, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. What, we, what I want you to gather here as we start into to Paul's sermon, and as, he, as he brings us back to the very beginning of uh, uh, the history of Israel, if you will, I want you to see here God's sovereign choice and the great display of God's power. Now, there's more that we could highlight here in terms of just trying to give you uh, a sub-point to hang your hat on, but we'll start with that. God's sovereign choice, and then in that, God's great display of power. Okay? So he gets their attention there in verse 16, then in 17 he breaks into it, and his emphasis here... When he begins to speak about Israel, I want you to see this. The emphasis is based on, is, is pointing to God's graciousness towards Israel. Now, again, if I could contrast with Stephen for a moment, Stephen emphasized what? When he was telling the history of Israel, their rebellion. He emphasized the, the wickedness of Israel and rebelling against God and his prophets. So. Paul's not taking that route per se. It's not that it's, let, that it's not in play. He's just emphasizing God's grace because he's going to speak of the promised Messiah that is to come. He's pointing them to God's work in bringing about the promised Messiah through the nation of Israel. But here we want to understand we need to see God's graciousness towards Israel in bringing about the Messiah. So there's where the emphasis lies in God's grace towards Israel in electing that nation. So He'll cause them, here the text says, He'll cause them to flourish. He did so in Egypt. He caused them to flourish. And He rescued them. He brought them out of Egypt eventually. And then He placed them into Cana, into God's promised land. All a fulfillment of prophecy. So all of the coming of Christ, all of the election of the nation of Israel, and by election I simply mean election to be God's chosen people in this regard, that God has chosen them to be the instrument through which He would introduce the Messiah, the unique God-man, into history. 
Okay? So he'll come up through the nation of Israel. And all this is fulfillment of prophecy, which bolsters the evidence uh, for Christ and his claims. So all this is prophetically fulfilled. There's a supernatural work of a supernatural God at place in his history. And we see that in uniquely in his electing Israel as his people through which he will bring forth the Messiah. And so look within there in verse 18. It says, For a period of about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, uh, that's a little bit of an unfortunate translation for us in the English because when we think of put up with, what do you think? That has a negative connotation, right? So he's like, oh, he just, you know, he could just kind of just tolerated them. Well, that's not quite uh, the intent here. When we think of what this, when we look at this language we uh, put up with, we should um, consider it like this. He, he bore them up as a more literal translation. So he didn't just tolerate them. He bore them along. He bore them up. He had compassion upon them all throughout of this journey. That's the heart of the issue. That's the heart of God towards Israel as he's, as he's uh, elected them as his instrument now to bring about the Messiah. So he's compassionate to this people. Okay? He cares for them as a father would care for children. That's the picture that's uh, spoken of here in verse 18, putting up with. It's, uh, again, don't let the surface... English mess you up here. It's, 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 more of, it's, it's totally different in terms of bearing them up. So Deuteronomy 1 verse 31 speaks to this when, we were, when Israel was reminded of, of God's care for them. It says where they saw how the Lord God had carried you. See how the Lord God had, remember how the Lord God had carried you just as a man carries his son in the way in which uh, uh, you walked until you came to this place. So that's the picture. He's carrying them along just as, a, just as a father would carry his son, just as a father would nurture his son along. That's how God treated them in the process. And then in verse 19, it says, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Cana, he distributed their land as an inheritance of all which took about 450 years. Now, he advanced them, and he enhanced them, and he did so at the expense of other nations. You have to hold on to that. Here we have seven listed for us, just to remind us. Seven nations in the land of Canaan. We just went through a Joshua, did we not, in our morning Bible study. We're working through the judges now. So what, I, what, what, we, what, this, what this is referred to as, there's, there's terminology for this, and it's called discriminating mercy. And, and that is really offensive language to our modern sensibilities, is it not? Oh, yeah. That's exactly what you see. Look, let me just say this up front. This is a, this is a loaded comment, and I, want, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but equity of outcome is not a biblical principle. Okay? I mean, we're living in a social context. We're living in a current climate where we've got to wrap our minds around where we're rooted and live it. We're not the boss. God's the boss. God sets the standards. From our standards, God's not fair. 
but we don't set the standards. God is sovereign. And God makes choices according to His own good pleasure. And God has two realities for all of history. He is going to save out a people for Himself according to His own good pleasure, for His glory, and He's going to rightly judge mankind who stands condemned in our own state and we can do nothing about it. Not one cotton-picking thing. That's grace. And that's justice. And both are equally true in a sovereign, holy, eternal, immutable God. He's not about equity of outcome. Equity of outcome is a farce. It's a man-made notion and it cannot come about. It never has and it never will in a fallen world. God chose Israel out and He brought them into the promised land and He wrecked other nations to do so. That's how it happened. Now it says here that it took about 450 years and I, I can just, I, when, when I read that, I can see, um, I can see Mark's antennas coming up. Because he's already doing the math on this. And we've got charts already. He's probably, he's probably got them already rolled up, ready to go. Um, that may not match up, okay, when we think about, because we just worked through, uh, you, you know, we just worked through Joshua and you say, wait a minute now, 450 years for God to give them the inheritance. There's a few different views on that. I won't go into it today. You can, you can work on that. It's going to be some homework for you. But basically, if you want my thoughts on it, the 450, I'll say it like this. Basically, from Abraham, from the, from the calling out of Abraham, from, from the time that God puts him on the scene, and that's kind of official, if, if we can put it that way, to the inheritance. Now, there's a couple other ways some folks work it out, and I could be wrong. So um, I'll... I'll, I'll Say that up front. That's, there's reasons I, I would hold to that, and that's kind of where I'll come down on it. From Abraham to the inheritance. Okay? So maybe Mark's... You can take a breath now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, the, the timeline might not matter when, when, when we hear that, but that's, that's where I would come down, and it's important, but I'll not belabor that. So there's one thought, uh, and again, that's uh, a good study you can look into. And if you want me to, uh, to um, elaborate on it some, maybe we can have a conversation later. Um, verses 20 to 22. Now here again, Paul doesn't address the sinful rebellion of Israel. That's not his angle, if you will. And they were very rebellious during these years. Rather, he does this. He speaks well of David. See that there? Notice that in 21 to 22. Or 20 to 22. He speaks well of David and he continues to focus on God's grace towards Israel. Now David here is a key figure. So he points out what has taken place, what they've asked for, what they've required. And of course, we know there was great rebellion in this. But then he gets to David. That's where he wants to go because David is a key figure. Why? Why is David a key figure? Why does Paul go right to David? Why is that? He's the one through which the Messiah will come. David's the line, the line of the Messiah. So that's extremely important. That's why Paul goes there. And the Messiah will be given through the line of David. And then we hear about John the Baptist there in verses 23 and 24. Uh, 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 23 through 25. And John the Baptist there, his public ministry was all about what? Announcing Jesus. Now how does he announce Jesus? How does John the Baptist announce Jesus? As the seed of David. 
So there again, that's where Paul's connecting the dots here. This is the, this is the promised Messiah. This is the one who has come through linear history of Israel. This is all the prophecy that's built up. Here's the fulfillment. Everything that's been said about what God, what that God has said about what He would do in the Old Testament concerning His Messiah. Well, here's the path. Here's the, here's the promised seed of David. Here's the Messiah. And He's a fulfillment of God's Sovereign grace towards Israel, which is a fulfillment of prophecy, a multiplicity of prophecy, played out in space and time, played out historically for all to see. Now we find the royal seat of David is enthroned. And it's enthroned by Christ. Again, emphasis here on God's grace towards Israel, not the wickedness of Israel in rejecting God. But you see the timelines marked out for you. You see the evidence. You see the prophecies fulfilled. That's Paul's intention. And the climax here um, is the coming of Christ. Now, let's think about that for a second. Though. Let's just pause here and think about the coming of Christ for a second. Israel's definitely guilty in killing the Messiah. So he's not... Um, emphasizing that, but that's, that's part of the reality. So Israel was, uh, or, or took the lead there. The Messiah was killed at the hands of wicked men, but the, the, the religious leaders of Israel, leading the nation of Israel, leading the people of Jerusalem there, uh, to kill the Messiah. So we know that's true. And that is the climax of Israel's sin. So the, the Messiah coming, fulfillment of prophecy, Israel did rebel, and the climax of Israel's rebellion is what? In the killing of the Messiah. And what did that do? What did the killing of the Messiah do? Well, that brought about the hardening of Israel, right? So that's the climax of Israel's wickedness. They're hardening at the point of them really killing the Messiah. So what we see here, I want you to hold this as we're trying to work through our understanding of the Old Testament and we're working systematically through the books of the Old Testament and we're hanging these things together. It's important for us. So here's something. Let me just pause here. Messiah has arrived on the scene in our text here. Let me just pause here for a moment and give you a little bit bigger picture look at this so we can hold these things together. Two things are happening in the coming of Christ. So there's the fulfillment of prophecy and the promised Messiah arriving, but then there is the reality of Israel's rebellion. There is the reality of Israel rejecting all of God's prophets. There is the reality of Israel ultimately leading the way and killing the Messiah. So what's going on here in the fulfillment of Christ or the fulfillment of prophecy in Christ's coming? Well, God's grace to the nation, and that's what Paul is emphasizing, and also the wickedness of Israel. Both are true. Both are, are happening in space and time. Both are going are, are taking place. So Paul's emphasizing God's grace <clears throat> because he's, he's uh, revealing the linear history of Christ. The coming of Christ is a climax of God's grace and the realization of God's judgment on Israel. Now that's why I want you to hold those two together. So when Christ comes, that ultimately, His his birth, his, his uh, life, his, res- his death and his resurrection, all, his, all of that, his earthly ministry is the climax of God's goodness to Israel and God's judgment on Israel. Do you see that? Now, both of those fit together in the Old Testament. We have to hold those two together. Both are true. Remember Luke chapter 2? 
about thir- verse 34, where uh, um, we see the prophecy there uh, concerning Israel. And Simeon there says, this child, speaking of Christ, he's destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And there it is. So God will, in His sovereign election of Israel, will save out a remnant. And He will lavish upon them His saving grace. And they'll be part of God's elect unto salvation. And they'll come out of God's elect people in terms of a nation through which He was good to them and good to mankind and bringing about the Messiah. We should see His election of Israel as good. The nation of Israel should have looked at that as good. But there He will will cause many to rise in the sense that He will save many out of that elect nation for sovereign election unto salvation as He will everyone who comes to Christ in repentance and belief. And also there will be many that fall from that elected nation. There's two groups of people in there. Not all of Israel is Israel, right? So there's an election in Israel to salvation for some, and there's a judgment on the nation of Israel and all who are outside of Christ and saving grace that belong to the nation of Israel in the first century are judged for their rebellion. All of mankind, Jew and Gentile, who is outside the saving grace of Jesus Christ will be rightly judged before a holy God. There are the elect of God in the nation of Israel and in the Gentile world. That's all of those who are elect of God, saved in Christ, who repent and believe on Christ and are covered by His atoning blood. You see, okay, you see that? So two things are going on in the nation of Israel. You have right there prophesied, you have the falling and the rising. That's they're saved and there's lost. And as a whole, God will judge that God did judge that nation for their rebellion against his goodness to them and ultimately his goodness that extends out to humanity. Does that help? Okay? All right. So we have here, if you will, two pillars in this choosing of Israel the history of Israel's idolatry and the history of God's forbearance. And that extends out to all of mankind. Now, how do we think about this? Um, as Paul brings us back to that uh, reality of, of the history of, of the coming of Christ in real space and time. Well, here's the bottom line. Jews and Gentiles are responsible for their history, for our history, for your history, for my history. We're responsible before a holy God for our history. In other words, we're responsible for ourselves. We're responsible for our lives. We give an account. Every Jewish person that's ever been born on this planet will give an account before God. And every Gentile person that's ever been born on this planet will give an account before God. We give an account. And our accounting before God, Jew or Gentile, will be simply this. I am in Christ, guilty, but hidden in Christ and justified by His atoning work on the cross and therefore made right with you, my holy God, or I am guilty outside of Christ and no capacity within myself to stand before your holy God because I am a sinner rightly deserving your just and righteous wrath. Period. That's the reality. So the gospel has a context. It has a history. 
And this is important for us, again, to be mindful, mindful of always, but certainly in our current uh, uh, um, uh, social climate. The gospel has a context. Its context has the authority of Scripture. Its context has Old Testament Israel as God's chosen people through which the Messiah came. Its context has the law of Moses. Again, we'll touch, we'll touch on that in our text. But it has the law of Moses that reigns over mankind in judgment. No one can be saved through what? The law. The law condemns us. So when we get to a social construct, a social context where we have notions of justice that violate God's standard, historical standard that we find in space and time, God's moral law, God's law, then we must reject those social constructs. So we have social constructs that speak of justice, but then the definition has been changed and altered. Now it has, it has a, 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 an incredible emphasis on the emotional stir, but if the definition of justice, which God, God calls for justice, ultimately there'll be, there'll be perfect justice before a holy God. But we have to understand God's definition of justice. And when that is altered or tweaked, then we have to ask, and if, we're for, if, we, if we believe in social justice, we'll define that. What do you mean by social justice? And if that, that definition comes from a context that's counter to the law of God, which we find historically established for us, then we have to have distinctions. We have to have uh, an understanding of our terms. And we have to rightly address these things. So if it's a justice that is uh, happy to accept homosexuality, that is happy to accept uh, uh, um, gender neutrality, and that is, that is happy to accept uh, um, uh, the LBGTQ agenda, whatever that may spill out into, then there we must say, no. This is not justice. This is not a justice that we can approve of because the gospel has a context. And that's very important, very important for us. So what do we do? Well, we realize that any other God that comes up that is contrary to this context is a false God. The gospel is rooting in the teaching of the Old Testament, creation of man, choosing of Christ, and the sinful the reality of sinful mankind. We have a context. So what do we do? We tell it. We tell the context. Here's who you are. Here's the reality. We're sinners. Here's what the gospel, here's where the gospel comes from. It's rooted and grounded historically. And it's rooted and grounded in, in Scripture. That's, that's, that's common grace. The context is common grace. And here's what the gospel demands of you. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a context and that's common grace to all mankind. And we need to hold it and we need to speak to it. And again, we should think of this as the goodness of God. The goodness of God in offering salvation through Christ in a historical context that we can lay every framework, every uh, um, construct of man that comes down the pipe, we can lay it, we can juxtapose it, we can lay it against the construct of God's sending His Son historically in space and time, and we can assess it. 
This is good for us, that we have a historical context for the gospel is good. It's not a philosophy that doesn't have history behind it. It's not a philosophy that was brought up in an echo chamber think tank at some space in time. It's historical, prophetic work of a sovereign God in His history. And so we, could see, we should see that the goodness in God electing Old Testament Israel, we should see the goodness there. And by the way, just as a last footnote here, Israel had much light. So children... I would say to you, in some way you have a similar reality. Now Israel rebelled greatly, but they had much light, and having much light is a good thing. So children, you have much light. You're being raised in a Christian home, and that's a good thing. That's a great goodness, a gift that God has given you. You have much more light than a lot of people uh, your age. But here's the reality that doesn't make you right with God. God still, you, there, there must be a desire for Christ. There must be a personal response that's necessary. The same was true for Israel. The same is true for you. Much light doesn't make you right with God. And parents, remind them of this. Parents, tell them of your testimony. Tell them what God has done in your life. Use that in your, in your family worship time. Give that to them. Help them understand that much light is good, but it doesn't make them right with God. Tell them of the transformed heart that God has brought about in you. And let that be a witness to them. Now, let me come to the promised Messiah. Verses 26-37. The promised Messiah. So here, um, Paul continues on. and He says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, again, dealing with both audiences there, a Jew and Gentile. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who uh, live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognize neither Him nor the utterance of the prophets, which, the, uh, which are read every Sabbath, uh, fulfilled these by, uh, the, by they, excuse me, read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning Him. And though they found no grounds for putting Him to death, they asked Pilate that He be executed. And when they had carried out all that that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to, uh, to Jerusalem, the very ones who were now his, wit- his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that He raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have, be- I have uh, begotten you. As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He has also spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, He also said in another Psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served his purpose of God and his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Now, the crucified Messiah was a fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah. Hold on to that. 
that he was crucified is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. That's what was said about him. The Messiah is to come, will be crucified. That's how you'll know who he is. And that was exactly the case. And of course, David uh, spoke to that prophetically. He is to come and he will be crucified. So the message of salvation, uh, the amazing grace here, is now really uh, uh, given by Paul. So now he speaks to this reality. The Messiah has come. It is Christ. We know who the Messiah is. It's Christ. He was prophesied about. He's the crucified one. He's the crucified and risen Savior. That's the Messiah. And there's the amazing grace. The gospel is Christ's rejection and His crucifixion. That's at the core of the gospel. Least He be rejected and crucified, He cannot be the one who makes atonement for His sacrificial death on the cross. So Messiah is clearly revealed here in Scripture. But the leaders of Israel, they reject Him. And they lead the people to reject Him. So really, this little section here could be kind of placed as, as Scripture versus the Sanhedrin. He's saying everything in, in, in the Scriptures there, this is the Messiah, but yet as they read it in their synagogues, week after week after week, they will not hear it. They reject the truth. They reject the promised Messiah. But God fulfilled Old Testament prophecy in this, in that He raised Jesus from the dead. So the resurrection here in Paul's preaching becomes the centerpiece of the amazing grace of of the promised Messiah. Here's the centerpiece. The resurrection uh, is the centerpiece of the gospel message. The resurrection does what? It validates the person and work of Christ. It validates, the resurrection validates that He actually is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Along with all the Old Testament prophecies leading up, here He is, the Messiah will be the one who is rejected and crucified. Well, who is that? Well, that's Jesus. And God raised him from the dead. Why? To validate, yes, it was Jesus. He is the Son of God. And then, in raising him and validating who he is, he also, in turn, validates his work. So you hear that language oftentimes. People will say, the person and work of Christ. That's, being, that's what's being spoken of here. The person, he is who he said, to be, who he, said he was, and he is who, who was uh, prophesied in the Old Testament concerning Messiah. The unique God-man, the Son of God, the second person of the triune a God. So yes, it's Christ. He was resurrected to validate He is the Messiah. And all that He said, all that He did, all of His work, all of His promises, all of His earthly ministry, culminating in the cross where there He died a vicarious death to atone for all who repent and believe on Him. There He died and had His blood shed as covenant blood to atone for the sins of His people, that His righteousness lived out in the law would there be imputed to, into their account, that their sin, their sin, that their guilt would be bore out in His body where God the Father would pour out His righteous wrath on the Son on behalf of of all those who repent and believe on Him, on behalf of His elect people, on behalf of God's chosen people, those who are now redeemed in Christ, those who repent and believe on Him. That's His work. Who He is and what He did. All validated, all vindicated in the resurrection. And again, 
the resurrection is not devoid of history. The resurrection has a background, right? And sadly, uh, in recent times, Anley Stanley has worked so hard, uh, I think with every good intention, to remove the resurrection from its Old Testament context, to remove it and kind of set it out as a centerpiece of, uh, of who Christ is and, and where, how salvation is offered. And in that sense, uh, the resurrection is a centerpiece. But again, I believe with every good intention, he, he says, you know, if, if you can just believe the resurrection, just hold to the resurrection, then you, you're on the right path to coming to Christ. So we don't need the Old Testament. Why? Because earlier this morning we, we looked at some of the stuff and we, we used that language. Uh, the Old Testament is not sterile, is it? It's not clean. It, it's, it's bloody. And it's brutal. But it's necessary. That's where all the prophecies are fulfilled. That's the work of a sovereign God. That's the warning. You know, a big part of Samson is warning. We looked at Samson this morning. That's some wild, crazy stuff, right? In that, in that, there's warning. Judgment is coming. You're dealing with a holy God. You're dealing with a sovereign God. And He saves. He offers salvation to sinners. Boy, that's easy to see in Samson. And then there's this wrath where He judges. And there's death. And there's eternal death. And there's condemnation before a holy God. All of that is pictured. All of that is laid out. All of that is true. All of that is historical. And it all is fulfilled. The prophecy of, of Christ is all fulfilled there. And we see that in the Old Testament. So we cannot divorce the resurrection from the Old Testament. Uh, I, I humbly say here, Andy Stanley is just completely wrong with every good intention, but sadly wrong and, 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 and hindering folks in, in more ways than he could ever imagine. And I think his heart's really to try to remove all the barriers to get them to Christ. And yet, he's minimizing the character of God. Resurrection has a context. And it's all in the, in the Old Testament is just that context. So what do we do? We certainly make the resurrection central to our, our preaching of the gospel, our proclaiming Christ. It, it is. It's God's vindicating His Son against the Jewish leaders and their judgment of Him. Uh, he's not a criminal. He's the Son of God. And it's God's validating His work. He is who He said He is. His work is uh, what He said it would be. The means of atonement. The only means of atonement for sinners before a holy God. It's the atoning work. It's the only way that uh, a sinful man can be made right with holy God. That's exactly what he said it was. The only way of salvation. And that was vindicated. That message was vindicated in his resurrection. So salvation. What do we make of it? What do we think? What do we do here with this language? Well, salvation is something that God did. All right, let's start there. It's something that God did. And what's our testimony? Our testimony is it's something that God did. We didn't do any of this. And again, not to to harp on Andy Stanley, but maybe that's where he's missing a little bit. There's something that you can do. And so let's try to get get the, the ugly stuff out of the way. There's nothing you can do. Praise God, because there's something that God did. 
and your testimony, if He did that, and if He broke into your wretched life and snatched you out of darkness and brought you into His glorious kingdom, then that's His work. And you know what you can do in testifying that? Give Him glory. Praise Him for saving such a stinking wretch like you and me. That's His work. And that's our testimony. Was there a response to the gospel? Yes, there's a response to the gospel. God is saving the world. Not every individual. We know that's not true. But He's saving people out of every corner of the world. He's saving them for the Son. He's saving them through the Son. And He's saving them by the Son. That's the response to the gospel message. We're telling what it is. What's going on? Why? Are we called to repent? Yes. That's the call. That's the call every Sunday we meet. Repent and believe on Christ, for there is your hope. If you do, you will find yourself a perfect Savior who has granted you faith to believe. Repent and believe on Christ. He is the crucified and resurrected Savior. Romans 13, uh, excuse me, Romans 11, 34-36 speaks of it well here. It says, uh, For whom has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that He might be repaid back again? Well, that's a, a, a rhetorical question and the answer is nobody. <laughs> nobody. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. So Christ did die at the hands of wicked men. And He was vindicated by the resurrection. That's historically true. That's God at work in His creation. All salvation depends upon what Christ did. There is no salvation outside of what Christ has done. None. So speak this gospel to people. It's not just believing in God. I mean, we're still, you know, we're moving towards a secular culture rapidly, but we still, I mean, we still kind of live in a rural part of this country, and we still live where the, the old guard of, of a Christian, uh, a superficial Christian culture still kind of looms and lingers to some degree. And so we get the language all that, we still get the language, right? Well, I believe in God. I believe in God. Look, just, <laughs> it's not just believing in God. You can give lip service all you want. It's not just believing in God. You must believe in the historical Jesus. Now, that's where the spiritual rubber hits the road. And not just believe about the historical Jesus. You must believe in Him. With your mind and in the very, the very depths of your heart, you must believe that He is the crucified Savior who makes atonement on behalf of your sins. You must believe He's the resurrected one. You must believe the historical facts about who He is, how God entered His Son into mankind, how He was born a virgin birth, how He lived a perfect life, how He died of a vicarious death on the cross to make atonement for sinners, how He has the right power and authority to judge you, how He has the right power and authority to make atonement for you. That is to say, to bear your sin debt in His body. That is to say, to be a sacrifice on your behalf. And at the same time, the very uh, uh, ultimate high priest who lays Himself out before God the Father to be that sacrifice. He is your priest and your sacrifice. 
And He commands that you repent. And He grants the faith that you might repent. So what do you do if you're in here this morning and you're outside of Christ? Beg Him to give you the faith to believe that you might in real space and time act on conversion, that you might repent of your sins and cry out to Christ. Believe on Him and you will be saved. That's what we must believe. Jesus is exactly who He said He is. That's what we must believe. It must be a belief from the heart and the head. Both are true. And that brings us finally to the saving gospel. There in verses 38 to 42. There I want you to see the saving gospel. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that uh, through Him forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed, so the things spoken of in in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them on the next Sabbath. Oh, there's your prayer request. Oh, that that would be true in our culture and our time. Oh, that that would be true of us. So here's the saving gospel. The old covenant is the very basis in type and shadow. Okay? It's the very basis in type and shadow, but it's the very basis for what for which the revelation of the new covenant comes. So the old covenant is the very basis for the promise and the revelation and the unfolding of the new covenant. But it comes to us in type and shadow. So now, again, hold on to that. So how do these things relate to you? How does the Old Testament uh, uh, calling or electing of God, of Israel, relate to you? How should you respond to what God has done in the history of Israel? Well, verses 38 through 42 come with commands. That's the different. That's the difference apart this, uh, from this whole text that we read from from 16 all the way to 42. Everything before verses 38, you don't see any commands. Verse 38 to 42, this is all. This is all a command. This is imperative. All this comes as a command. Look there in verse 38. It says, uh, let it be known to you. You've got to know. Let it be known to you. What? In verse 39 it says that you believe, that everyone who believes. So there's a knowing and there's a believing. And we're commanded, these things are commanded of us. That's how it comes in the text. You know and you believe. This is required. This is commanded from God. Now, what else do we find here? There's an important element. This comes to us in command. And there's warning here. And then there's a great, marvelous, huge, fat truth that's in these texts. Can you tell me what it is? Well, there's a number of things. That might not be the right way to ask it. But there's just a loaded reality that we need to know here. It's in verse 39, and it ends with law of Moses. Does that help? You cannot be saved. How? Through law of Moses. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't honor God enough. You can't live righteously. You can't do anything 
of works or good deeds or anything of keeping of the law of God that will bring you into a right relationship with God. You are a sinner. We broke one, we broke them all. We're born sinners. Look, Adam broke one, we broke them all. We're born sinners. The law is given and given thoroughly for one driving truth to tell us we're all sinners and point us in type and shadow to a Savior. Everything about the law of Moses points to a Savior. If we don't get that, again, we're going to struggle with our understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a judgment of Gentiles, judgment of Jewish nation, beauty of the election of God in the Jewish nation, save folks from the Jewish nation, save folks from the Gentile world. And a law that reigns over everyone that cannot save. But in it is grace. In it is grace. Everything that we see is grace. That's why we don't just throw the Old Testament away and all the blood and all the death and all the judgment. We We don't throw it all away because it's warning. It's warning. And it actually makes grace grace. Grace is not grace until you understand judgment. It cannot save. We cannot be freed through the law of Moses. All sin, all sin, every sin remains guilty under the law of Moses. This is nothing. There's no part of the law of Moses that can forgive anything, okay? Some people have the notion, well, there's some things that Old Testament Israel was forgiven for under the law. But they just had to have the little bit tacked on by Jesus. No. Nothing can be forgiven under the law of Moses. Nothing. Old Testament people could be forgiven, right? We know Old Testament. We just, I call to worship. We saw two, didn't we? Didn't we? Abraham, David. There was two right there in our call to worship. There's two examples right there. So people could be saved in the Old Testament, certainly. Certainly there were Old Testament saints. Samson. We worked, at, we worked on Samson in our morning Bible study. There's an example. And we got to, we got to, have a nice little discussion about, you know, Samson was just not that great of a guy. <laughs> saved. God saved sinners. God saved sinners. But it's God's work, not Samson's work, not Abraham's work, not David's work. It's God's work. The law condemns. And the Old Testament folks that were saved were saved by faith. Abraham and David were forgiven. They were not forgiven on the basis of law. They were forgiven on, they were forgiven on the basis of faith. Samson was forgiven. He was not forgiven on the basis of the law. He was, given, he was forgiven on the basis of the faith, of his faith. Faith that was gifted to him by a sovereign God who chose him out when he didn't deserve it. That's the same. If you're sitting here as a blood-bought believer of Jesus Christ, the same thing happened to you. It's the same thing happened in your life. So it's faith. And for them, it was simply this. Faith in the coming Messiah who would be crucified and raised from the dead. Christ provided forgiveness by grace, sealed in His atoning blood, and access by faith for those in the Old Testament and for all who are yet to come, or for all who are living now, and for all who are yet to come until He returns. That's how it works. So what we see here is an unspeakable glory of the coming gospel. And there, I want you to see in verse 39, this beautiful language. You see that where where Paul goes here and he says, through Him, speaking of Christ, everyone who believes, and there's the command, everyone who believes is freed 
from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now that is a glorious verse. That's a nice memory verse, children. That is a glorious verse. You know what that word is translated here, freed? You know what it really is? In the original? It's a word that translates to us, justified. Justified. Paul loves that word, doesn't he? I mean, he's on it right here. He's, and couldn't you just, don't you just imagine him in his head right here when he gets to this part in his sermon? Wouldn't you just like to be in that moment? Because here, here he gives it to him. You're free. It's not arbitrarily free. It's not free and avoid. It's free justified before a holy God. You're created, the creator of time and history, the creator of your very being, the sender of the Savior, Jesus Christ. You're freed in Him. You're set free. And there it is. Christ is everlasting. He's perfect. And His sacrifice is acceptable forevermore. Amen? We're still reconciled. I got up this morning and I was just not happy. I, was, I got up, I didn't have, I'd forgotten to do something last night. I wasn't prepared. I got up late. I was upset at myself. I was, I was ready to just bite the heads off my children and everything else. Just, just not happy. And yet I thought, you know, I woke up this morning justified. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Guess what? I'm going to wake up tomorrow justified. I shouldn't, but I will. Don't you see? That's grace. Every day you wake this side of glory, you're going to wake up justified because He's eternally gracious to you. His salvation on, on, in your life is eternal, everlasting. You're justified before a holy God. I mean, when you just stink it up as a Christian, you wake up the next day justified. That's God's work. That's grace. That's amazing grace. We wake up justified. We're still reconciled to God by Christ. Amen? Still reconciled. And by the way, baptism is a symbol of this. We've got a couple of folks who are going to interview for their baptism after service today. And so there's your hint, right? There's one. Hope that put that in your pocket. Baptism symbolizes not only this, but symbolizes uh, that once for all forgiveness of sin. It's a picture of that reality that we're justified. And even when we have those Samson moments, we're still justified. It doesn't please our heart. We hate it. It causes us anguish. We long. We come back. We confess We beg Christ to continue that sanctifying work in our hearts, or at least we die of anguish, but we're still justified. And Christ said that very thing to to Peter right there. Remember when when he was washing the feet? You remember that? There's a beautiful picture of that. When he was washing the feet, you know, and uh, here's the master. Here's how you live. I'm the master, but I'm serving you. It's a, it's, a, it's a snapshot of who Christ is, but it reminds them of who they are as His disciples. This is how you're going to go out and live in the world. Peter's just still, you know, Peter's still with that mindset, you know, I might wake up not justified. So don't, you know, you're, don't mess with my feet. If you're going to, then there's everything. He's just got it all, he's, you know, he's just twisting his head. And then Christ comes to him and says, look, man, you only need your feet washed. That's all you need. Because you're going to wake up tomorrow justified. Just deal with your sin. I know you hate it, Peter. 
I know you hate it, but you're going to struggle with it. You're going to struggle with it until I call you home to glory. And part of your struggling with it is the reality of my saving grace reigning upon you. You're going to hate it, but you're going to fight it. It's going to be a dog fight all the way to the end. And your biggest fight as a Christian is your own sin. You hate it. You hate it. And you think, don't you think, I think, God won't just take it away. Oh my goodness. Well, then we, you know, then we, sometimes we just love the gift more than the giver. Hello, Samson. I, know I, can't, I, just, I can't leave the guy alone this morning. I'm sorry. We just love the gift more than the giver. But it's the giver, really. It's the giver who's to be worshipped. So even in the filth of our struggle with sin, He is glorified, glorified, glorified. And He's strengthening you. Dear brother and sister, He's strengthening you. We're being sanctified. You do wake up still justified and it's another step in the sanctification because soon we're going home. Well, in 1442 is the warning. And so we, we, I know we're over and I, but, but here we are with the warning. So let's, let's, let's look at this. 1442, it says, take heed, right? Here's the warning. The gospel comes with a warning. Take heed. Take heed that this doesn't happen to you. It comes with a warning. All those who hear the gospel have this warning resting over them. Take heed. Take heed. The world is held accountable to repent and believe on Christ or be rightly judged by a holy God. That's the command. It's the command of God over humanity. Repent and believe on Christ or you'll be rightly judged. So just for our application in that reality of it comes with a warning. And here's why we have the Old Testament. Why all the struggles of the Old Testament? Why all the headaches with us trying to read it and put it together rightly? Why all the infighting about how it really all sort of lines up theologically? Well, we'll be taking those issues all the way to glory. But one thing I can tell you can settle on is uh, why in one regard is because it's one big long type and shadow of the coming of Christ and the glory of His coming. And with that comes warning. You must repent and believe or Christ will judge you. Here's the great grace of God in offering Christ. Here's salvation. Here's forgiveness. But least you come to Christ in Christ alone, you will be rightly judged. Now that's just a running Old Testament theme and type and shadow. And it applies to all mankind through all generations as a biblical standard truth. So what do we do? <clears throat> we realize that gospel preaching recognizes a call for a proper response, a spiritual response, a saving response. And unless, there is that, unless that is the reality, there is righteous judgment. This is a warning. The glorious gospel offers full and free forgiveness for every sin. That's what baptism, part of what baptism pictures. And that is set upon a, that is set, that is set upon a pillar of reality that says you must repent or you will be judged. That's the glory of the gospel. It's not grace unless there's warning against the judgment to come. It's not grace unless you're saved from something. What are you saved from? Your own sin and condemnation before a holy God. We're guilty sinners. And there's the gospel. There's the amazing grace. And warning comes with that. What are we to do? We're to carry it rightly. 
We're to share the amazing grace of God in Christ and Christ alone. And it comes with a warning. Least you repent, you will be condemned by your God, by your Creator. You will be condemned, rightly condemned, and judged. There's a warning, and the warning gives, uh, uh, gives that platform for the offering of the amazing grace of God and Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You this morning. Um, what an amazing sermon. What an amazing text. How could we even begin to wrap our minds around it? How could we even begin to assess it, uh, to apply it to our lives, um, to, to, to rightly see Your majesty in uh, this beautiful um, lay, sermon, the way, it's, the way it progresses, the way it's laid out, the way You worked it out in the mind of Paul all those many years ago. Um, what can we do? What can we do with it? We just ask You simply, Lord, to take this word and to minister to our hearts that we might know you and love you, that we might be moved, that we might be stirred, uh, that, that you, we would be overwhelmed by your worth and your majesty and the, and the offering of salvation that comes through Christ. Thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.